Welcome to the podcast of the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary, a space for ongoing dialogue among Asian American scholars, ministry leaders, and activists. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. David Chow. I'm the director of the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary. Today, I have the privilege and opportunity to host uh, a guest, Easton Law, Dr. Easton Law, who is the Assistant Director for Academic Programs with the Overseas Ministry Studies Center. Welcome, Easton. Thank you so much for uh, having me for this conversation. Now, Easton, you might want to help our viewers and listeners understand you've been traveling quite a bit recently. Where have you traveled from and where have you ended up? Well, um, for, to make a long story short, uh, for the past three years, uh, I've been living in Geneva, Switzerland um, with my family. My wife had a wonderful opportunity to work with the uh, United Nations High Commission for Refugees. And while we were there, I was finishing up my uh, dissertation. And since then, uh, we've moved here to Princeton, uh, New Jersey, where, uh, as you mentioned, I'll be taking up a new position with the Overseas Ministry Study Center, uh, OMSC for short. So it is a mouthful. Uh, OMSC, which also recently made a move from New Haven, also here to Princeton, as OMSC is now embedded in uh, as a research uh, and training center at Princeton Theological Seminary. And so there's been a lot of moving around, but we're excited to finally uh, uh, be settling in. A hearty welcome to you, Easton. Um, we haven't met in person yet in Princeton, but I look forward to doing that once you're settled in. Um, so you're taking up this new position as the Assistant Director for Academic Programs. Uh, tell me a little bit more about what you'll be doing with the OMSC and some of perhaps your goals, um, along with even maybe your vision. Tell me, tell me what excites you the most about your new position at, at, the, at the OMSC? Great, thanks. Well, um, I am incredibly excited to be at OMSC. Uh, for those who are working in the field of missiology, world Christianity, or intercultural theology, OMSC is uh, a fairly well-known uh, center, despite how small it is. It was instrumental in helping to seed a lot of research in world Christianity early uh, in, the, in, the, in the 80s and 90s. And as a result, uh, as OMSC is starting to embed itself here at, at PTS, um, there's new resources and new opportunities for the organization. Um, one of the things that I'm most excited about working on is uh, we're actually uh, designing and implementing a digital uh, online curriculum uh, around the topic of lived theology and world Christianity. Um, it'll be a year long sort of uh, online uh, program open to uh, pastors, uh, scholars uh, all over the world. And the whole goal is to help equip them with sort of uh, qualitative research skills and new ways of thinking about theology, being able to reflect on their own contexts and their own ministries in a way that they can tease out some theological um, hypotheses and proposals. And the whole goal of something like this is to get um, people in touch with the diversity of Christian experiences in the world and to, and to really ask and engage the question of what is God doing in, in all of these diverse experiences. So that's something that I'll be working on. But OMSC has a number of new initiatives 
uh, coming up in the in, in the in the new year. Um, new lecture series. We're working with the world. We're working with the Princeton Theological Seminary uh, World Christianity Conference to start a new uh, lecture series. We are going to begin translating uh, articles in uh, theology and Christianity that are written by scholars from the global south in a different language for the International Bulletin of Mission Research, which is uh, OMSE's academic journal. The goal again is to amplify really the voices of a uh, world Christianity that we don't always hear from. There's great scholarship being written around the world, but it's not always in English. And translating that will get, uh, get the word out. So that's another thing that we're working on. And we're also uh, working on research grants. Uh, we're gonna be uh, um, providing uh, research grants uh, to, to scholars and researchers in, 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 the, in the global south and the majority world. So um, those are some of the things that we're, we're putting together right now. That sounds extremely exciting, Easton. As you described some of these initiatives through the OMSC that you will help uh, spearhead and facilitate, it strikes me that you are the perfect person for this job because of your training and background, your research, um, which was examining Christianity in China from sort of empirical social scientific perspectives. You and I have had several conversations about ethnography and theology and this uh, useful term live theology is one way to capture the convergence and dialogue between the social sciences and Christian theology. So I am really excited to hear you talk about this new course on live theology and world Christianity. Why, why do you think it's important for this course to be offered? What does it offer that perhaps previous um, courses may not have offered? What is distinctive and unique about it? Um. I think what is distinctive about this is, I guess, first and foremost, something that all of us have been learning to do in an age of COVID, it will be completely online, right? Um, that's become normative and we're seeing in that opportunity. Uh, OMSC for a long time, most of its history has invited global scholars and Christianity, uh, missionaries, ministers from the global South and the majority world to come to OMSC for a year of study uh, and rest. Um, we're still gonna keep doing that as, as, as uh, COVID uh, hopefully begins to, uh, to fade a little bit. Um, but with this new opportunity, we want to be able to provide training and resources to uh, Christian scholars and, and, uh, and pastors who may not be able to get away from their ministry contexts and come to Princeton for a year. That's asking a lot. Um, so that's the first thing that I think is truly distinctive. But secondly, and perhaps more content oriented, um, so many of the pastors and scholars of the, of the global South and in the majority world, they are doing amazing work, um, especially pastorally in, in very, very different contexts, but they don't have the time or the luxury to write and research the way that uh, uh, scholars uh, in, in, the, in the global North often do. And I think, I think this orientation toward live theology is trying to give them a perspective that, you know what, you can, from your ministry and from your work, 
uh, discern uh, what God is doing in the lives of your congregations, in your own life, uh, not in a traditional theological sense of working with propositions or doctrine, although those are also important, but really thinking about what God is doing through you and through your, uh, your, your ministry. And, uh, and really, I think what this curriculum does is it brings together a lot of uh, research and insight that's been bubbling up in practical theology um, uh, that has been, uh, that's become more and more normative. Um, and it brings those tools and that perspective to um, scholars and, and, and ministers in the global South, people from Asia, people from Africa, um, Latin America, um, Central, uh, you know, Central uh, Middle East. And it gives them an opportunity to handle these tools and discover new things with these tools. And by tools, I, I do mean forms of qualitative research and theological reflection, and hence the term live theology. Uh, we really want um, the, the, the church to get a better sense of what are the lived theologies that are happening in uh, other parts of the world. And I think that ultimately that gives us a better picture of what the body of Christ is doing. That's interesting. That's what, what I'm hearing is the research methodologies employed in this thing called live theology amplifies our understanding of the Catholicity of the church, that the church, the, the unity of the church is found in its plurality as dispersed across the world. And this kind of inductive, empirical, uh, social scientific sort of description and investigation of the faith and practices of many kinds of Christians helps to amplify under our understanding of what Christianity is. Absolutely. I think you stated that perfectly. <laughs> let's, so let's, we'll keep a, we'll keep a, an eye on this live theology theme, and I want to run it through some different permutations. Uh, you're a scholar of Christianity in China. I am interested in Asian American Christianity. Uh, you're aware of trends of, of what's going on with Christianity in Asia more broadly, and you, you're keeping your eye on the trans-Pacific context between Asia and Asian Americans, especially in, in, the, in the recent year of the pandemic that has embroiled the world and Asian Americans in a particular way with references to the China flu and sort of this increase in anti-Asian racism that our previous podcast guest, Russell Jung, so helpfully identified and described. Um, so we can kind of, I, I want to have a bifocal perspective on this conversation. I want to look at uh, Christianity in its Asian context, Christianity in its Asian American context, especially around the season of the pandemic. Um, and I feel my sense is you have a very specific vantage point because you are a, a scholar of Christianity in Asia, but you yourself are Asian American. And I think this is what you so helpfully navigated in your presentation at our April Live Theology and Asian American Conference is you were trying to situate your own social position as an Asian American within your, the field of your study, um, Chinese Christianity. T tell, me, tell me more about how you see um, Christians in China or more broadly in Asia navigating the pandemic. Uh, what do you see in terms of their particular struggles, uh, particular um, trends or patterns, and how you might connect this to what's going on in 
in terms of the domestic situation of the U.S. That's a big can of worms. So feel free to pick up any piece that you're interested in. Sure, that's that is a very complex uh, question, and uh, but I, I have been pondering some of these issues for a while, and hopefully they'll they'll come out and, and make sense in our conversation. Um, I can't. It's it's difficult to speak of. Christians in Asia as a whole, because Asia is a very large continent, of course. And so for I will be specific when I say uh, when I talk about Christianity in China. Uh, during the, yes. um, as people, as most people in the world are aware, uh, religion in China is a particularly sensitive topic. The communist government does want to control religion, although in no way does it attempt to, uh, to, dis- to destroy or get rid of religion religion anymore. That sort of is a a relic of the past. And so the Chinese government is always looking for ways to oversee religion, including Christianity. And Christianity in China is probably the fastest growing uh, religion in the People's Republic of China today, not the largest by affiliation, but in terms of growth rates. And what that means is the government, uh, the communist government is is trying to, to do this dance where they both leverage the best traits that they think Christianity brings to its citizens while downplaying anything that they see is subversive. So it's a tall order for for the communist government. During the pandemic, what has happened is Christians have, uh, like anywhere, everywhere else in the world, gone online. Um, They've gone online and uh, they've used uh, social media to sort of expand their their, their presence and to pray together. And for some churches, this has been an absolutely great opportunity to minister in new ways. But for other smaller unregistered house churches, this has been a very, very difficult time. Um, if we're gonna take what the situation in China and, and uh, it's, you know, the, the sort of what people perceive to be the, the starting point for uh, this pandemic and as wrought, uh, it obviously has, has had trans-Pacific implications for Asian Americans as a whole, not just Chinese Americans, of course, and you're very familiar with that. Russell Jong, I'm sure, has spoken at length about uh, the anti-hate crimes and the rise of that. But what's been interesting, if you think about the trans-Pacific link between the experience of Chinese Christians that are always sort of keeping an eye on the the government and trying to, 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 to mark out their space in a way, negotiate their space and presence in the country. I think they have lessons for the Asian American church, uh, very important lessons. Uh, in a time when American uh, religion, American Christianity is, is taking on a very sort of um, aggressive nationalistic tones, particularly among you know, the white majority. Um, Chinese Christians exist with a clear sense that they will never ever be part of a social political order. Um, and they, they operate in that way. They do operate as that sort of community set apart. Um, and I think for Asian Americans who, uh, especially for second and third generation Asian Americans who struggle so much with this question of how do I belong here when I feel split? Um, there are lessons here about owning your unbelonging, uh, owning your liminality, owning your uh, diasporic sort of identity. And in, in, in terms of embracing it as something that is true to, that is truer to faith 
than ever belonging fully. Um, I think uh, Chinese Christians have a keen sense of, of this dichotomy between I belong to the church, but I don't belong to the People's Republic of China uh, as a nation. And, Amer and Asian Americans who are struggling with this uh, can, lear can learn something from that. Uh, those are just some of the things that I've, 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 I've thought through. So hopefully that was clear. Easton, that, that's really tremendous. I'm trying to reflect on the fly with the insight here, especially about belonging and the political and social structure of the church in China means that Chinese Christians more intuitively or more naturally, one could say, are forced to uh, really carefully consider who they belong to or where they belong to or what they belong to. And there's, there is a, a clear distinction between the church and the PRC. And that's fascinating to channel that insight into the US national context where Christian nationalism is the great temptation, especially for white Christians, but Asian American Christians face a different modality of that in terms of belonging in general, right? Because nationalism is this desire for a nationalistic belonging and Christianity can be co-opted to serve that type of political interest because it has a grammar of the body of, 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 of belonging and so it gets complicated really fast. Um, so I'd love to just chat more about belonging. This is kind of a different rift and we'll see where it goes. I've been talking with various stakeholders in Asian American Christianity, trying to identify where Asian American Christians are currently in 2021, where in terms of our history, where in terms of our politics, where in terms of our theology, some biographical information. Uh, I'm a parent. We have a child who's 13 years old. And, so, and I think a lot about what the Asian American church holds for, for my son. What is the future of the Asian American church, especially in light of what's going on with anti-Asian racism and race, uh, racial justice concerns. I'm also thinking about the 90s where so much of Asian American second generation congregational life took off as a thing. Uh, I think it was Helen Lee's article in Christianity Today, 1996, that described the silent exodus as first generation immigrant churches we're struggling with what to, what to do with these second generation uh, uh, Christians in, in their midst, uh, how to empower them, how to relate to them, what to do with budgets, uh, church sharing spaces, those practical concerns, which are issues of belonging, right? I think immigrant churches are, are created because newly arrived immigrants, whether in the 90s or today, don't feel that they belong to let's say white churches or mono-ethnic churches or even multiracial churches. And so out of survival and necessity, they create an immigrant church that speaks their language in which they can hear the gospel and participate in a family, in an extended family, right? Because they've left their family in their country of origin, whether it's in Africa, or Latin America, or in Asia, 
they've left those and they have no family or social resources. And so when the church comes along and invites them to belong to a new family, a spiritual family, they think this is a blessing. It's a, it's an empowerment. It's a really good thing. But then as immigrants have children and their children have different needs from the first generation, a different need of belonging arises and so on and so forth with the third or the fourth generation. Right. So I'm, I am trying to play jazz with the motif of belonging here and to identify how each successive generation of immigrants have different needs of belonging. And this is the ongoing struggle, challenge, and promise of sort of immigrant Christianity or what, what I would just call Asian American Christianity as it pertains to Asian Americans. Any thoughts on any of that so far? Yeah. Um, yeah, on, on the biographical note, I, I resonate perfectly with you. I am a second generation Chinese American, uh, born and raised here, but I also have children. Uh, my son is 11 years old. Um, and what's interesting for me as I consider the Asian American church in my experience, as well as in you know, the potential of that experience for my son, uh, there really are a, a huge number of questions about belonging. Um, and given my own uh, experiences living abroad, I, I have lived in the PRC for four years. I've lived in Geneva, Switzerland for three years, uh, dragged my children to Switzerland for that time. Um, I come from a different uh, standpoint than many Asian Americans who perhaps, uh, second or third generation Asian Americans who perhaps were born and raised in the States and haven't lived overseas. Uh, perfectly understandable. But for me, I think the key to understanding the individual experience Experiences, it's always embedded in larger social patterns, right? I think um, there's so much that we need to draw and study and reflect on in Japanese American Christianity uh, to understand what's happening in Asian American Christianity as a whole. Because today, Japanese Americans are a very, very small percentage compared to most other immigrant, uh, Asian, Asian immigrant communities. But the cycles that they went through um, are the cycles that we are going through now as, as, as much of a, a minority as they are in the larger Asian American circle now because, um, because of things like the internment and because of things like uh, their, their active role in leading uh, the Asian American uh, civil rights sort of movements, right? I think there's an awakening to, to that history now with anti-Asian hate. Um, there's a, a reawakening to uh, questions of, you know, what did the murder of Vincent Chin spark? And what does that mean for now, right? And let me try to bring this around. I know these are very divergent threads. Let me try to tie them together a little bit. Um, for me, as sort of a, a Chinese American second generation who's moved around a little bit, I think digital technology is bringing the world, a sense of the world as a whole closer than ever before. Hmm. Um, and what that means is that for the third generation, for our, our children, uh, there is a greater sense of the world out the, out, outside of America than there used to be, hmm. even if that's just digitally mediated. Um, and with things happening, with, with those links becoming even, even thicker because of, for example, the, um, you know, the, the COVID-19 pandemic, um, 
there is a sense that what happens out there in Asia affects what's happening to me here. Uh, and so the question of belonging in the Asian American church, if we, if we look at history, if we look at what's happening now in, in, in technology and, and sort of the interconnections, um, I think there is some very important, there are some very important lessons about the church universal. Yeah. No, that's... What is it in American church to be part of the church universal? Uh, you know, um, as opposed to just be part of the American church or just the yeah. Asian church. Yeah. And that role inside. So I was talking to a, a sociologist of Asian American Christianity, and he's closer to my generation. So he's on the older side. And we have memories of the 90s, and we're in the 2020s. And so we're, we're, we're remarking upon the generational shifts when it comes to Asian American senses of belonging. And I wanted to draw upon some cultural artifacts to help illustrate these shifts, the shift from when David Chow was struggling to feel a sense of belonging versus what your, your son and my son might be feeling in the 2020s. And one, one point of reference would be that ABC um, comedy series, Fresh Off the Boat with Eddie Huang. I remember, you know, I don't, I haven't watched a lot of it, but there was one episode early on where Eddie who's a, a Chinese American immigrant, his mom packs him a specific kind of lunch and that he takes to public school. And it's usually like noodles or dumplings, things that I think are delicious, which his mom thinks are delicious, but which his primarily white um, school friends at the public school cafeteria found odd. And so Eddie would throw away his homemade lunch in the garbage can in order to eat what was offered in the school cafeteria. And he felt a sense of shame, uh, perhaps even self-rejection, as symbolized in throwing away his, his homemade lunch for um, white food. And he, it was really funny. He got his mom to go to the grocery store to buy Lunchables because that was a socially acceptable form of lunch food. Fast forward 30 years where I think um, Lee Isaac Chung's movie Minari, which is a kind of autobiographical narrative of his growing up as an immigrant in the US, won, won awards, was um, nominated for several Academy Awards. We've got movies like Parasite as well. Um, we've got BTS, which is now mainstream from what I understand. Uh, I've heard some BTS music. I, I wouldn't consider myself part of the BTS army, but I'm aware of the, the sort of movement that K-pop in general has created where it is, it is now mainstream music. Um, and so, you know, kids of the third generation or teenagers today that are Asian American don't have to feel a sense of shame or discomfort necessarily in being Asian American. It, it can almost be cool to be Asian American. And this marks and I think the, the whole BTS thing and some of the, I think that that's where the social media and the, the technology piece that you were describing really blurs what is Asian from what is Asian American. Asian American, in my, in, on my account, has always had uh, an irreducible connection to its trans-Pacific origins and context and the geopolitics therein. But social media is such an 
interesting hinge upon which to analyze these blurring of contexts. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm trying to run with your thought here about technology and how it's really complicated and blurred these harsh binaries of Asia this and US that Asian Americans seem to embody the blurring of those contexts. Absolutely. It's, and, it, and I think it's like you said, for the, for the new generation, the blurring is something that's more acceptable than it was when we were kids. Uh, before the blurring was a little bit tortured, if you will. Uh, I remember as a young person uh, in, in, in middle school thinking about, oh, what kind of music do I want to identify with? Because there are subcultures associated with music, right? So I was like, well, there's Nirvana and, and, and the white music, and then there's Tupac and the black music. And, but I'm Asian American, so what does that even mean? So I, I dabbled a little bit in, in, in Chinese pop, which isn't very, wasn't very good from my even own experience. But then I think in the 90s K-pop. for me, it was new wave. New wave music was kind of yeah. <laughs> the alternative to those options. But you, there was actually, there's actually a whole article, I think, about Asian Americans and, and new wave sort of uh, yeah. pop, right? Um, or, or rock. But all this to say, um, I, and I'll illustrate this through um, I'll illustrate this through the experience of what I perceive my son to be experiencing. Um, the it's not just social media that has blurred things, but it's just capitalize capitalism and globalization that has blurred things. Hmm. Um, I've taken my son to China. I've taken my son to Taiwan. We haven't lived there with him, but you know, there he's going to get uh, the foods, and you know, in, in Taiwan, it's all about the bubble tea, you know. And we move here to Princeton. And look, there's bubble tea on Nassau Street right there. Um, when there, there's bubble tea all over Geneva, Switzerland, at this point now, from from the low, from the from the quick, uh, quick, you know, sort of quick and easy to the to the high end, like they're using these tea espresso type machines for bubble tea. Um, and so, so for for my son, who's seen bubble tea in Geneva, seen bubble tea in Taiwan, and sees bubble tea in the United States. It's just a part of the world now. It's not something that is, and he knows it's Chinese or Asian or Taiwanese, but it's also just part of the world now. It just, there's nothing that makes it weird. You know, we were uh, at, the, at the Kung Fu Tea on Nassau Street. It was packed with every type of person talking about red bean and winter melon, like they knew exactly what it was. <laughs> Whether they were African-American or, or, you know, or, 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 or white American. And my son says, it's just, it's just the way life is. And so Asian Americanness as a sense of global belonging, I think is, uh, is more attainable. But of course, COVID-19 and the anti-Asian hate that has also bubbled up is a wrench in this. It's almost like paradoxical, right? It's, it's more um, present Asian-ness than ever before, but then these things come up. And so, Sometimes I think the, the word to describe the next generation is not necessarily uh, liminality or marginality, because I think those things are starting to, to fade. I think it's contingency. The fact that you, that, that you can be at one moment the most popular thing in the world, not just in America, and then suddenly something happens in China, in you know, the Philippines, 
and suddenly everyone is looking at you like you are diseased. Yeah, yeah. Um, this, I think that's I think, what they're struggling. With. And then the new sort of questions. We're gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna title this podcast "Belonging in Boba Tea," because <laughs> that's that's what we're talking about. As you're talking about contingency, it reminds me of this um, section in my course on Asian American theology, where I talk about the racial whiplash in Asian American history from Japanese internment, so where Japanese Americans and Asian Americans more broadly were viewed as a existential threat to America and therefore incarcerated in hundreds of thousands, even those who were citizens and serving in the US military to 10, 15, 20 years later being written in the, the New York Times as the model, the model minority. And what changed? These are still the same Japanese Americans and they went from villain to hero. And it shows to your point, the contingency of Asian Americans within a larger narrative of the political economy of the US, right? And so I, I think this is, this is really important for Asian Americans to reflect upon their, their status, their position um, as contingent within, within US history and politics. Yeah, and I think about, I, I keep dwelling on the question of what does the Asian American church have for this emerging or present, it's not even emerging, it's just the present condition that we're, we're wrestling with. And it's hard for me to answer in part because I, have, I haven't been part of an Asian American church for some time. I am part of that silent exodus. I moved on to, you know, multicultural sort of, mm -hmm. sort of churches. Uh, and of course I care about my Asian American identity. Um, and so there's, there's, I guess, first we have to differentiate between an Asian American church and Asian American Christianity, I suppose, mm -hmm. to one extent. Um, and I think, like I was, you know, I'm trying to, uh, to strengthen the, or, or enflesh the, the thoughts I had earlier. I think the Asian American church uh, offers something, a space for Asian Americans, even of the third generation, to make sense of their particularness in a global, in a, in a, in a global way. You know, I think there's a huge opportunity for Asian American Christian leaders to speak to, you know, this is what it means to be so particular here in the United States and yet part of something so big uh, that is beyond any uh, nation state, beyond any particular culture. And, and, and they're going to get a sense of that because they already feel the, the contingencies and the implications and the blurring, both the good and the bad of it. Um, that's, that's, what, that's my hope uh, for my son. If you want to, you know, if you want to really ground it, that from Asian American Christian leaders, they can see how faith uh, helps you make sense, Christian faith, how the gospel helps you make sense of being particular and yet uh, global uh, at the same time. Uh, I think that's my prayer. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, um, you know, I, I'd be curious to hear more of... The stories you've heard, the observations you make uh, when you've worshipped and belonged to various congregations you mentioned in the PRC or Taiwan or Geneva or in the U.S., 
What do you see Asian Christians or Asian American Christians doing differently that enriches your understanding of Christianity, right? So uh, I, I want to I want to bring it down to the concrete, um, and that's why I, I mentioned stories. Do you have any stories to tell of the faith and practice of ordinary ordinary sort of Chinese Christians or Taiwanese Christians or Hong Kong Christians or um, you know, Korean Christians in Jersey or fourth generation Christians in San Francisco, Chinese Christians, what, what is it about their faith and practice that makes you think, oh, Christianity, there's something special about what these folks bring to the conversation about Christianity more broadly? Because I'm hearing it theoretically, like you're, you're, you know, I'll use the term Catholicity. The un we're expanding our understanding of the Catholicity of the church. All right, you and I are theologians. We like to talk that way. There may, there, not everyone listening to this podcast may be a theologian. They might, they might be much more practically oriented. So I'd love to hear more stories that you can share with us about the unique, the uniqueness of the faith and practice of Asian and Asian American Christians. Sure thing. And uh, I, I think... Um... Geneva is a fitting example. Uh, Switzerland is often neutral. And of course, being um, Asian American in Switzerland is a little strange because you're neither in Asia nor in America. You're as far from yeah. both of those regions as you can be in the middle of yeah. Europe. And the church that I, uh, I helped, I served in when we were in uh, Switzerland was a church plant uh, that was started by a uh, a Zimbabwean pastor that was trained in the UK. Uh, he was Baptist by upbringing, but uh, trained in sort of the uh, emergent Anglican evangelical, uh, you know, HTB alpha course sort of um, thread. And he started this international church in Geneva. And uh, I, me, me and my family were one of three Asian American families in this church. The other one was uh, Taiwanese American, and the other, and, and then the other family was Korean American, and we bonded instantly over sort of all of the the various layers of blurring that we were trying to negotiate. A being in Switzerland, B being tied to Asia and America. Uh, the the Taiwanese family, the mom was first generation and she was second generation, and the daughter was second generation raised in New York. The Korean American family, the, the, the father was a 1.5 generation. He had gone to elementary school in the States, then high school in Korea, middle school and high school in Korea, then went back to the States. And now he was in, you know, in, in, in Geneva, Switzerland as well. Um, all of us worked, had somebody working for some kind of global organization, whether it was the WTO, the UN, um, or the uh, IOM. And uh, I, just, I, I, I go through all this description because it's, it's messy and it's hard to like logically sort of um, make sense of, you know, but what was important for us as Asian Americans in Geneva, Switzerland was to have a church where we could maybe not explicitly, you know, in, in any kind of academic or systematic way where we could simply live out um, that blurriness uh, in a in a comfortable way, where we could where we could uh, engage the gospel and and together know that things are very very blurry for our identities, 
and what it means for the world, um, but also not feel like we have to hide that. Um, uh, I don't know if that makes sense because obviously when we were, we, we all ended up being part of the same small group because we were able to have that kind of space to talk about things. If we were all part of small groups that had other people, maybe we couldn't talk about that blurriness as much. Um, and so there was, uh, there was something very special about being able to uh, live in the live out of the blurriness and have it acknowledged and, and, and worked out. That's so cool. I, I think that's a, a really um, fitting story to conclude our conversation on this topic, um, this thread about belonging, uh, boba and blurriness. Uh, I think, I think, you know, Easton, now that you're in Princeton, I hope we can have these conversations on a regular basis. Uh, it's really exciting to um, see the OMSC and its vision in this direction of live theology and world Christianity. I think you're exactly the right person at this moment to, to provide that leadership and energy um, with, with a, uh, Tom Hastings, I think you guys are going to make a fine, uh, an, an awesome team. And I really appreciate your personalizing our conversation today about theology, uh, faith, Asian Christianity, Asian American Christianity. This has been really exciting. And so thank you for your time this morning. No problem. Uh, my pleasure. And, and, and on the topic of Bulba, you know, and the blurriness and, and belonging, it's interesting how cultures make things their own. We were at the Kung Fu Tea uh earlier this week and not only was bubble tea normative not only were uh african-american young people talking about red bean like feel perfectly fine and then they loved it but they were their summer specials were oreo bubble tea hershey's milk chocolate bubble tea which i made me uncomfortable it made me uncomfortable but my son oh it must be like a milkshake <laughs> and uh there is something interesting about the blurring yeah. uh, of, of these things. And I think the Asian American church needs to speak to that. And so thank you for inviting me for this conversation because it, it gives me a space to, to ponder these things. It's not usually part of my wheelhouse in terms of what I'm working on, yeah. um, but it is very personal and very real. And, yeah. uh, and in the same way that I think the, the small group at my church in Geneva created space for that blurriness um, to be lived out in our faith. Uh, I think this conversation does that. And I think I'm, I'm super excited about uh, the Center for Asian American Christianity here at PTS and your leadership, because I think you are creating that space yeah. for, for blurry belonging, where you don't have to come <laughs> in and able to say, I am this, and I know exactly what that means for my identity yeah. and yeah. my politics and my, yeah. and my faith. But yeah. instead, I am these things that I can't logically or reasonably make sense of, but I'm living. And by seeing how that gets lived out, there'll be something there. Uh, there'll be some kind of testament to what the gospel is doing because I'm not gonna be able to systematically make sense of the blurring of my cultures and my identities. But through the living, something's gonna come out. And, and, I, and my prayer for the Center for Asian American Christianity is that it's a space for those stories, it's a space for discerning what God is doing in those stories. Um, and I think you are uh, equally the, the, the best person for the job. So I'm excited to, to, to continue these conversations and continue uh, working together. All right. The next round will be with Boba T. All 
All right, so we're, we're, we're going to hit Nassau Street now that you're now that we're neighbors. Thank you, Easton. <laughs> Thank you. We here at the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary invite you to join in the ongoing dialogue on Asian American faith, identity, social engagement, and ministry through our newsletter, blog, and upcoming conferences at L. T-I-A-A dot com.